Hi, Vet Girl here today with David Liss, RVT. He's a veterinary technician specialist in emergency critical care and internal medicine, and he empowers veterinary technicians throughout the world. And what he'll be speaking on today is top tips to leverage and utilize technicians and assistants in an emergency, or how to do other doctor things while saving lives. David, thank you so much for doing this Vet Girl podcast today, and go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Justine. Uh, It's such an important thing for all of the staff members in an emergency to be fully engaged and on board when we deal with these really sick animals. What are the goals of this little podcast we're doing? Well, doctors do doctor things and techs do tech things, and that's really very important. And a lot of times, I'm sure most of you know, in a normal, everyday, average clinic, they're really mixed. A lot of times, doctors do tech things and technicians do things they shouldn't be doing, like clean. They need to be doing more advanced patient care things. So what am I doing while I'm advocating for the enhanced utilization of the technical staff in your clinic, whether they're assistants or RVTs or CBTs or vet tech specialists, whatever it might be? Why? Because time is cells. Time is incredibly important in an emergency situation. And the longer a patient waits for treatment, doesn't have anybody to help them, the longer somebody waits to talk to the owner, cells die. Kidney dies, patient goes into systemic inflammatory response syndrome, multiple organ dysfunction, and dies, right? So time is cells. Very, very important. So my goal, and I think my formula, is more efficient use of time is equivalent to more lives saved. So what are the goals in an emergency? Well, we want to do things like treat and reverse shock, right? We want to control hemorrhage, treat pain, restore organ perfusion, or control any kind of life-threatening issues. And we have to do that through teamwork. So very, very important to think about the veterinary team as what we're looking at. So how do we engage the staff and improve patient outcome? It comes through utilization. You know, you can imagine a busy, busy day in a clinic and there's spays and neuters going on and there's dentals going on, or maybe your ICU is full if you're at a specialty referral practice or you have a full slot of internal medicine referrals, and in comes this crashing emergency. The whole team has to drop what they're doing and jump on this patient. And when we're talking about critically ill patients, they usually need between six and 10 things done yesterday, right? So you need between six and 10 people, ideally, to be able to do all of these things. So we have to make sure that the technicians do technical stuff and doctors do doctor stuff. And remember, when we're referring to staff, that there's all kinds of people that work in a clinic. So your technician might be your veterinary technician or registered or licensed or certified technician. It might be your technician assistant. It could be whoever is that person that's going to really work right next to you as I speak to the veterinarians on this podcast, being able to do those technical duties. So also remember that utilization is also going to help those technical staff stay at your practice. They're going to be engaged more in the daily aspects of the clinic and want to remain with you as their primary employer. Just some statistics as I talk about why to utilize staff and make sure that they're used. If an employee leaves within one month, the turnover cost is three months of that employee's salary, and it doubles every time. So if an employee leaves within three months, turnover cost is six months of their salary. So the whole point is let the technicians do what they want to do. Let them be autonomous in and within their scope of practice. So technicians will not prescribe. They will not do surgery. But if they are to place an IV catheter, let them pick what vein. Let them pick what gauge. Let them pick what type of fluid drip they're going to put together. You decide what fluid bag. They decide what fluid line. And it all works, and the team is much happier. Some interesting things about the Veterinary Practice Act in California, I'll use as a quick example. It actually lists certain things that registered veterinary technicians can do under this act, and it includes things like inducing anesthesia and performing dental extractions. One of them actually lists uh, creating a relief hole in the skin to place an IV catheter, which is essentially 
a mini cut down that does not involve using a scalpel, which again, we probably should not be doing as technicians putting a scalpel to skin. So there you go. There's already an emergency act that I, as a registered veterinary technician in California, am allowed to do. If I come across a patient that is not doing well and my, the, the doctor or veterinarian has prescribed an IV catheter for this patient, I can take a needle and make a small hole in their super thick or dehydrated or tough skin and feed my IV catheter in underneath. And the other thing that the Veterinary Medical Practice Act in California covers is things like applying tourniquets and pressure bandages in critical emergency situations, administering fluids and drugs for shock, doing resuscitative oxygen procedures, which is essentially intubating and providing oxygen and CPR. So all of these things are covered in our Practice Act, which means essentially in an emergency when the veterinarian is there, I can start basic life support, I could apply a bandage, I can place an IV catheter, I could give fluids under their direction, lots of things that I can be doing. So I kind of want to think about a typical case. And this is a hit by car that comes in. And, you know, we're going to play a little a role here. I and mean, the role is going to be of the veterinarian that likes to do everything themselves. We're just going to put that out there. And essentially, the patient comes in and, you know, the owner walks into the dog and is crying and the dog is broken and bleeding. And the receptionist, who also is not really empowered to do anything, just kind of screams and yells and calls for somebody to come up front. And the technical staff run up front and grab the dog from the owner and run into the back. Now, the veterinarian's in the exam room and somebody rings for the vet, who then has to interrupt the case that they're discussing. Maybe it's a euthanasia. Maybe it's a, the veterinarian is telling this owner that their pet is about to die and he has to leave or she has to leave the room, run into the back and then look at the pet. And then, well, they do everything themselves, right? So then they walk up front and leave the shocky pet in the back, speak to the owner to get consent and nothing is happening. The patient is still in shock and they're still hemorrhaging and they're still going all those things. So then the veterinarian talks to the owner and says, we'd like to do all of these things. We'd like to place a catheter and give some fluids and run some blood. I'm not sure what's really going on. So then the veterinarian walks into the back and then does all of those things themselves and can't hit the vein and tries to run the blood work but can't do it. And the technical staff are looking around saying, what else can I do? And this progresses. I don't want to beat this, you know, this situation up too badly, but I do want to say that this isn't the right way to go about it. If the technician can run up front and grab the animal and triage the animal and do a primary assessment and get information from the owner, deliver it all to the veterinarian, the veterinarian can say, oh my gosh, I think the patient's in shock and bleeding and the owner has already given consent for emergency treatment. Let's do these, 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 and these things. And then the technician goes in and does these things and gives the vet information and the vet makes further decisions. That continuum of care works a lot better than when there's only one person in charge. So there's no I in teams, right? Well, what am I meaning by teams? I mean treat efficiently, aiming to maximize success, right? Teams. So there's no I in teams. So it's very important that we treat these patients efficiently, aiming to maximize success. And so if there's no I in teams, that means the team works together to get these patients where they need to be. So what are my tips? What are David Liss RVT's tips to utilize technicians and assistants in emergencies? Well, tip number one is text triage and get intent to treat. What does that mean? It means that technicians triage the patient. They look at them, they assess their basic parameters, they get their temperature, they get their mucous membrane color, they check their pulses, maybe they even check a blood pressure, and they also obtain consent from the owner. So they say, look, your pet is pale and tachycardic and collapsed and cold, 
I'm very concerned. The doctor is probably going to want to do some basic stabilizing things. Here is the consent I would like you to give. Do you give consent? And potentially, could you leave a deposit? This is not really rocket science. This is things that the receptionist might do as well. But all that information happens right up front with the technician, and that technician can then take that patient right into the back and give all that information to the veterinarian. Once the pet is in the back and we have a better feel of that owner giving some consent, if they don't, this talk kind of goes off the sideways, right? Because then we go into the whole, well, what can you pay for? What step-by-step can we do? But if they do give the basic consent for not surgery, but just the beginnings of the diagnostics and stabilization, then we have that green light to move forward. So then again, that technician can do the primary assessment. Now, if the veterinarian is right there, sure, they're going to be doing a physical exam. But what if the vet isn't? What if the vet is knee-deep in a Great Dane spay or is taking a you know fourth premolar out or is in an exam room or is at lunch? All of those things happen, right? So the technician can say, okay, I have a patient who is lateral recumbent. They're not mentally appropriate. Their gums are pale. They're cold, and I can barely feel femoral pulses. What does that equal? Well, I would not ever write on a chart shock. That's a diagnosis. But I can tell the veterinarian that information. And do you think that the veterinarian's going to have a lot more information to then decide on whether to treat or not? Sure, right? I could even throw in there that I, gosh, listen to his chest, and he doesn't have a murmur. Good. Then we can push fluids, right? So all of these things are very, very, very important. And these are things that technicians can do. We don't diagnose, but we can absolutely assess. So that's the major difference. All right. Tip number two is what are four things that usually can be started with owner consent? IV catheter, getting some blood, checking a blood pressure, and giving oxygen. Now that might be actually surprising to, or a little bit scary for a lot of the veterinarians to think that their technicians could do these things. Remember, none of these can really cause a lot of damage, okay? Even in a patient that is hypocoagulable and thrombocytopenic, they're probably going to get a line. They probably are going to get a blood transfusion. So placing a catheter is okay. And we've got to start making technicians responsible for the care. So if the patient has petechia and they have pale gums, the technician should not be putting a 16 gauge in the jugular. They need to know that. But that is their prerogative to decide to put a 22 gauge in the cephalic or the saphenous. Now, blood draw. Again, finding the correct vein, taking a small sample, not taking 12 mils of blood, but taking the small sample to have available for the veterinarian to then decide what tests to run. Checking a blood pressure. That's probably probably the best one because it's non-invasive, right? That's not an invasive procedure. And then flow by oxygen. And if we do those four things, pretty much every single critically ill patient that comes into the clinic is going to get those. Now, some of you I can already hear saying, well, we may not put a catheter. Well, yeah, you're going to if you're going to deliver pink juice, right? So even if the patient's going to be euthanized, you can probably utilize that IV catheter. So I really advocate that these four things are things you can do on every single critically ill patient that walks in your door. Now, anything beyond this is going to change right? Whether you want a glucose or you run a PCV or you give a certain medication or you give a bolus of fluids, all of those things are where the veterinarian is going to be involved. But these four things are things that your technician could possibly do on the lunch hour when you are down the street at Panera or McDonald's getting your food, driving back to the clinic with one hand eating your sandwich, the other one on your cell phone, talking your technicians through working with this critically ill animal. So tip number three is actually about IV catheters. This is really a nursing domain. If you go into the hospital, the RN, the registered nurse, does not ask the MD, what vein should I use, what size catheter? The MD writes down pre-op, and the nurse decides where to put that catheter. So the size and location should be really up to the technician. And there's all kinds of information they can use, right? If the patient has bilateral radius ulna fractures, we're not putting the catheter in the cephalic vein, correct? So our technicians and assistants should be making those decisions with the training that they have 
have received to be credentialed or on the job trained. Remember things like larger bore is better because it equals faster flow, and then using veins that are closer to the heart, such as the cephalic or jugular, to deliver fluids. Again, it does not mean that every patient's going to get a short peripheral IV catheter in their jugular vein. Not all times is it appropriate. And the other thing, and again, this is for mainly the California RVTs, I got to make that legal disclaimer here, that they are allowed to legally make a relief hole in the skin if they can facilitate IV catheter placement. So I'm by no means saying that you can take a scalpel and do a surgical cut down. That's not allowed, but you can make a small nick in the skin to be able to place an IV catheter through, say, a Tomcat skin or a really bad heat stroke that's got really, really leathery skin. Tip number four is blood pressure. So this is more to the veterinarians. I'd like you guys, men and women, to make sure that your technicians are proficient in blood pressure measurement. Not adequate, not mediocre, proficient. They can get a blood pressure in in any artery in almost every patient you see, with exceptions. Have I, as a VTSECC, said, um, I can't get a pressure? Of course, right? Because their pressure is probably less than 20 or zero, but I still know right where to go, and I know how to troubleshoot my monitor, and it's usually the Doppler, so that I can get the pressure that I need. Remember also that Dopplers, through some scientific studies and also a lot of anecdotal evidence, are probably more accurate than oscillometric models. Now, the oscillometric model gives you the diastolic in the map, which is excellent, but a lot of times they weren't made for veterinary patients. There's only, I believe, one that is validated for veterinary patients, and they're all not really meant to be made on hypotensive, arrhythmic, or shaking animals, which is pretty much what we're going to see when we're seeing a critically ill emergency. So I absolutely advocate using the Doppler, and really the probably most important number you're going to use in this situation anyway is going to be a systolic to guide your therapy. And then once you get a pressure or the patient's a little bit less moving or they're in surgery, yes, of course, use your beeping monitor, use your computerized monitor that'll give you a diastolic and a map. But the Doppler is such an easy instrument to use. And because you can find that pulse and hear that pulse, it's going to be a bit more reliable. Tip number five, oxygen therapy. Now remember that we're talking about getting the oxygen where it needs to go. So the oxygen, flow by oxygen, is going to increase that partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. And that does contribute somewhat to the overall oxygen carrying capacity. But it's also going to remember, it's going to somewhat supersaturate the blood and allow whatever hemoglobin is there to potentially pick up extra oxygen molecules and enhance the delivery of oxygen. And really, for a short term, five, 10 minutes, there are really no complications of giving 100% oxygen. And mostly it helps. It can treat hypoxemia and it can treat arrhythmias if they're related to hypoxemia and things like that. So there's a lot of reasons why we might give flow by oxygen in an emergency. And those are things that a technician does as well. They can decide how to set up the anesthesia machine. They can decide whether it's on a gentle mask with a rubber cone or they take the cone off or they're just using the end of the anesthesia circuit. Any of those things might be really important. So to recap, a technician should be responsible for initial patient assessment, verbal consent from the owner, placing an IV catheter, drawing blood, obtaining a blood pressure, providing oxygen support, and then performing all diagnostics that is requested by the veterinarian to free them up to do the doctor things, speaking with the client, writing the chart, and guess what? The most important thing is determining the course of action, being the captain of that ship. And if they aren't necessarily having to do the things that all the other sailors have to do, they can really be the captain. Last tip is to think about things that are a little bit more broad and move into stabilizing or moving on with some advanced diagnostics, and anesthesia is one of them. I don't have actually specific tips, but what I do want to say about anesthesia is we need to be better at utilizing our technicians in anesthesia 
anesthesia. So for example, you're busy, it's an emergency patient, you've already examined that pet, if I'm speaking to the veterinarians, you know, you probably only have five or six anesthetic drugs, right? So the combinations you're going to use to induce a patient are not going to change on a second or minute-to-minute basis. So come up with some induction combinations. Why don't you call them induction combination one, two, three? And then you can tell the technician, hey, we're going to use combination one today. They look at a chart, they dose the drugs, they give the induction. That's really how it should work. And then remember that in the middle of surgery, you have a section of necrotic bowel and you need to do an RNA or you're literally elbow deep in a Great Dane GDV and that patient starts to crash or they're hypotensive or has some sort of anesthetic complication. The brain actually cannot multitask. It cannot do two things at once. It can do one thing and then in a microsecond do something else, but it actually can't. And they've proven this through research. It can't multitask. So for you to be able to fix that GDV, fix that hemorrhaging short gastric artery and also manage the patient's hypotension, that's not going to work. So you've got to get your technicians empowered to know what to do, when to lower the vaporizer, when to give fluids, when to start a dopamine drip, all of those kinds of things. They have to be almost one step ahead of you in a sense to be able to really bring these patients out. Now, last tip before I wrap this short podcast up is CPR. And this is one of my absolute pet peeves. I'm going to say it, veterinarians, you are not to do compressions. That's not your role. You are to be the leader. But guess what? I know it's fun, right? I'm going to say it. Doing the compressions is the best part because you get that adrenaline rush and you're really doing what you're supposed to do. But if you are diverting all of the blood to your shoulders and your biceps and your abdominal muscles, guess what isn't getting blood? Your brain. So you're not thinking and you're not able to direct and dose epinephrine and assess an ECG and do all of these things. The veterinarian has to be the leader. So guess what? Train your staff to do the compressions, to be able to place the IV catheters to intubate. And remember, this is where you utilize everybody. You utilize the kennel assistant to do the compressions. That's probably the least invasive thing and requires the most minimal training, right? Because we train 16-year-olds how to do CPR on an infant. So that means we can train our kennel assistants to do CPR on pets. And then you get your leader technicians to intubate that cat that's coding or something like that. Your other leader technician to get that IV catheter and that cold and dead animal. And you are directing organizing, communicating, recycling information, all that information has to come from you. doesn't mean you can't, of course, rotate into the CPR process, but if you are the one that starts compressions, you're not going to be diverting blood to the organ that really needs it. Last tip, last tip, two tips before we circle this up. Tip number nine is techs provide intensive nursing care. So once a patient is stabilized and ready for admission, it really should be your nurses, your technicians' roles to establish their nursing care sheet. You're going to put down the drugs you want. You're going to help them decide on those intervals, but they need to decide when the patient gets vital signs and walks and what level of intensive monitoring we're going to check them on because They know that at 2 in the morning, the patient's sleeping. It doesn't need to walk. It can sleep and will wake it in the morning. Whereas a lot of times, veterinarians just go 8, 2, 6, 8, 2, 6, and just highlight the sheets. I mean, the technicians that are listening will know what I'm talking about. And if the veterinarians don't, just realize that, remember, when you're signing up a 24-hour treatment sheet, the technicians go, but I just walked him a half hour ago because he had to go to the bathroom, but now I'm ordered to do it again. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Technicians should be deciding those things. That's what nurses do in the hospital. They decide when you get up, when you walk, when you eat, when you sleep, all that kind of stuff. And that's that is what our role is. Lastly, I am going to do a call to arms to the veterinarians. You guys got to listen to your technicians. You must listen. We are passionate, caring, detail-oriented, and results-driven, as well as observant and critical thinkers. And if you ask us what we think about a situation, how we could improve it, or maybe make it better, you'll get the best answer. So again, and I'm speaking to now the veterinarians because you are the leader of the team, remember to listen to your technicians. So I just want to quickly remind you guys of the team model. There's no I in teams, but we want to treat efficiently, aiming to maximize success. I want to thank Vet Girl for having 
having me do this short podcast. Hopefully this helps you all aim to maximize success in your critically ill patients by saving time, being more efficient, utilizing your staff to the max. And guess what that's going to do? It's going to save more lives. This is David Lissarvi T. Thank you very much. 